On this edition of the Scott Radley Show podcast, we are going to talk about what Bill Gates had to say and what the Harvard Business School had to say, because they both said the same perk is the number one thing employees are looking for in 2019. What is it? What is the one thing that employees want more than anything else? Is it more salary, more vacation? We'll tell you what it is. We're also going to be chatting about a new, well, not new, a new to us, a new now Dundas Arena. The JL Greatmeyer Arena is finally about to open, but man, it has taken a while to get here. We're going to tell you the story with one of the people who has been behind this whole thing, and we are going to go on a Bigfoot search. A Toronto author who had a passion, an interest as a kid in Bigfoot decided, you know what, I'm going to go and I'm going to see if I can find one. I mean, he didn't. it wasn't a hunting one. He didn't take a gun. He was already in the area out in BC in the wilderness and said, I think I'm going to do an exploration here and see if I can find one of the old Sasquatches. We're going to talk to him and see whether he did and what else he found out. Enjoy it. Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML. Welcome to the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML Hump Day. But not just Hump Day. Some of you, this may be your real national holiday. Today is National Red Wine Day. So, grab a glass of whatever it is, preferably red, that would fit in, and sit back, because we got a lot of stuff I want to get to today. Uh, It may go down easier with a goblet of red wine, perhaps a carafe of red wine, maybe a keg of red wine. I don't know. You can tell me at the end of the show how much of it you needed to get through the show today. Let me tell you what's coming up, though. We're going to be chatting first up today. Uh, Bill Gates was talking the other day, and he offered up a little Bill Gatesian suggestion of what it is that workers in 2019 want. What is the thing that workers want more than any other, as far as a perk? I mean, salary, vacation, good office. What's the thing workers want the most in 2019? We'll tell you what it is, and we'll tell you, we'll ask and talk about whether or not he's right. Uh, Bottom of this hour, we're going to be chatting about the well, Dundas's arena is finally back and about to be up and running. It has been a process. Let me tell you, if you don't know the story behind this, stick around because, you know, you would think that just redoing an arena should not be that big a deal. Ooh, you'd be surprised. And next hour, a guy who has hunted Bigfoot joins us. He's written a book about his search to try and find Bigfoot. There are people who really do this. We'll talk to him. As always, the first segment of the Scott Radley Show is brought to you exclusively by fox40shop.com. For sport and for safety, it has to be fox40shop.com. Enter the promo code RADLEY at checkout and you will get 25% off your order. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. A few days ago, Bill Gates was giving a talk to some group of business people. Uh, and at the end, they open up the floor for questions, and Bill Gates was asked one very simple question among the others, and that was, what is the most important perk a company can give to its employees right now? In 2019, millennials, baby boomers at the end of their time, Gen Zs coming in, we got a, a, an array of ages of people who are in the job market, getting in, leaving, whatever. What is the most important perk that a company can give its employees to keep them happy, to keep them satisfied, to probably keep them with the company, especially if they're good employees? The answer that Bill Gates gave, and I'll tell you what it was in just a second, interestingly aligned was the same answer 
as a Harvard School of Business study came up with. It was released just late last month. So it's a very recent study, just came out. I don't know if Bill Gates looked at this study and based his answer on this or not, or maybe the two of them came up with this answer independent of each other, but they gave the exact same answer. The most important perk in 2019 for employees, letting employees work remotely, usually from home. Let them work from wherever they want and you will have happy employees. Now, I know Bill Gates is terrific at making up computers and computer stuff and software. And I know Bill Gates is amazing at making money. What I don't know is whether Bill Gates is amazing at running a company personnel-wise. So let me bring in someone who does know how to do this. He is an expert at this. Nick Bontis is an associate professor of strategic management at the DeGroote School of Business at McMaster. He joins us now. Nick, how are you today? Happy Red Wine Day, Scott. <laughs> you too. There you go. So do you agree with uh, with Mr. Gates and with the Harvard Business School survey that letting workers, letting employees work wherever they want is the number one thing to do right now? So I, I do agree, and the, and the academic research also bears this out. Uh, I mean, the definition of flexible work arrangement, which is what we're talking about here, flexible work arrangement, and you uh, made a very, very simple distinction, which I'd like to highlight for your listeners, and that is there's a difference between work from home and work from anywhere, as we obviously know. Uh, work from home might not be a good idea for some people. You know, there's more distractions. Perhaps you have young children. Uh, perhaps you don't have the technology or even a fast Wi-Fi connection. So it, actually working from home might not be uh, the solution. But generally speaking, what the research shows is that individuals who do have the flexibility to work remotely, whether it's home or not, uh, do realize a 4.4% productivity increase. So that's what the empirical research shows, that they actually get more done in the same amount of time. So that's the one benefit. And the second benefit that the academic research shows is that there's a significant reduction in office expenses. Obviously, Obviously. Somebody, yeah, yeah. it's going to work from home. You don't have to pay for a desk or a, or a computer or, you know, um, you know, any extra rental for, you know, their cubicle space or what have you. So those are the initial results that we're finding. See, I don't even know that companies necessarily, I mean, sure, they would like the 4.4% increase in productivity. I'm not even sure they would really care about that as much as they would just want the same level of productivity. If I'm going to let you work from somewhere else, at least make sure you're doing the same amount of work and you can be happier and we can still get the same amount done. The 4.4 to me would be a bonus. Well, the 4.4 is a bonus, and I, I'm with you. If I can do the same amount of work and I'm actually happier, because what we need to understand is, you know, what is the stress about going to work? Well, part of it is staying in traffic every day. You know, and here I am, uh, you know, driving towards Toronto. And let me tell you, man, it is not a pretty sight out here today. <laughs> uh, it's a beautiful sunny day, but it's backed up. So, you know, if the average person, let's say someone from Hamilton going to Toronto uh, every day, I mean, let me tell you, I mean, that, that's one or two or th- even three hours that you can put back into a person's life every single day. I mean, if you added that up through a lifetime, you don't want to know what that equals. So, you know, giving those hours back to somebody so they can, you know, spend more time with their family or or doing whatever they want recreationally for fun. I think that's part of the game. So yeah, you're right. Productivity is one thing, but being more engaged and, and a happy individual, that's probably more important. Now, let me flip it around though, because even if you get the same level of productivity, what about the idea? And I don't know that this is an old school thought. I don't think it's really old school. What about the thought that says, you know what, if you put your workers together in the same environment, they're going to brainstorm, they're going to come up with ideas together. One person doesn't necessarily have the full idea, but they bounce it off a few other people. Right. So you're taking that away. So you may get the same productivity, but you may lose something at the other end. 
Well, there, there, there's two major limitations that we're finding in the research uh, in terms of working remotely. The first one is the one that you've nailed. We call it collaboration. It's impossible to collaborate face-to-face in a meeting when, you know, nobody on the team is there. So uh, the solution that many organizations are coming up with right now is what's called intermittent, intermittent physical interaction, which is a very complicated way of simply saying, you know, you've got to get these people physically together maybe, you know, once every two weeks or once every three weeks so they can establish rapport, look into each other's eyes, smile, you know, talk about the family. But once they've established that rapport, then they can collaborate online. So it's, it's quite easy, and let's face it, you know, it's in Bill Gates' interest as a major shareholder of Microsoft for us to continue to use his software. So people can use email and Outlook more and can use Office and SharePoint and all those tools that Microsoft makes. But the thing is, in order for you to have a very productive collaboration among your employees, you have to make sure that they physically get together once in a while. You can't just expect them to work just as well together when they're only together remotely. That doesn't work. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. The number one thing, apparently, that workers in 2019 want is the ability to work remotely, to have flexible opportunities. You can work from home, you can work from somewhere else, maybe work from the cottage, work from the dock. That would be rather lovely if you had a cottage and a dock. Nick Bontis from the DeGroote School of Business is joining us talking about this. Uh, And Nick, you know, as I hear this, I I think to myself, I get that this is very alluring to people. This is a really enticing thing to have this, but I'm thinking number one, that means it would be more than salary, more than benefits, more than vacation, more than a private office. That's saying something about how much people really want to do this. Well, I think people value their time more than anything, right? They value the the work-life balance and they know that uh, you know, if I can save, uh, you know, even an hour or two a day by not having to commute to work, um, then it's worth it to me, more so than the pay increase. So that, that that's what the research bears out. And I'm not suggesting to anyone that, you know, they should walk into their office tomorrow and tell their boss, hey, I'm going to work from uh, my summer cottage for three months every summer starting today. I don't think that's how it works. I mean, every culture works. Uh, sorry, every culture is different in an organization. Uh, flexible work arrangements in some organizations uh, are more advanced than others. But my recommendation is, if you're interested, is you ease into it. You know, you might want to propose, you know, maybe one day a month. Uh, and then if that works out and you engender a certain level of trust and productivity, then it turns maybe into, you know, one day every two weeks or one one day every week. So most individuals, the best advice I can give them is to ease into this type of arrangement. And obviously there are some businesses, some workplaces you can't. If you're a garbage man, it's pretty tough to work from home or, or something else. But... <laughs> Yeah. That said, why is it up to the workers? Like, seems to me that you'd like to believe the people who run businesses are generally smart people. They've decided to do this. They've put thought into it. If this is seen in the papers and the academia and everything else as the number one thing people want, and you are running a business that could do this, why are more businesses not saying, do this? Well, you're right. I mean, it, it, really, it should be your boss or your, or your supervisor that should be offering this opportunity. And, and for many of the formal organizations that do have work flex, flexible work arrangement policies in place, uh, HR does do that. But the truth is, every organization is different. And, you know, they're, they're all over on, in terms of the spectrum from one end to the other. So, uh, you know, if your boss or your HR department's not coming to you first, uh, I have uh, no problem in recommending that you speak to them first. Now, if you don't want to speak to your to your boss or your supervisor, because you, you don't want to, uh, let's say, cause a little bit of a rift, uh, you can always go to some independent person, maybe an HR person, or if your organization has an ombuds person, for example, that, that might be the first way to go in terms of just, you know, feeling out the idea and seeing how they respond. Let me go back, because I'm wondering if part of this is an old school line of thinking 
that when we think of working remotely, we probably mostly think of working from home. And I'm not going to lie, when I think of everybody working from home, I think of a lot of people in their pajamas with the temptation of the TV and of their bed and of a bunch of other things. And you go, I'm just not ready to believe that I'm getting the same productivity. Well, I think you're right. I mean, and that's why we talk about, um, you know, work from anywhere. Uh, you know, technology has changed. Uh, you know, even you, know, you can get Wi-Fi access now, uh, even on a plane, right, and on a train. So, you know, what was once a very, very boring flight, let's say from Toronto to Vancouver, uh, could potentially be a five-hour productive meeting. I mean, that's assuming you want to work and you don't want to watch movies and relax. So everybody's different. But I can tell you that, you know, in my travels, uh, you know, I think that's probably the most productive time that I have. I get to read what I want, write what I want. And, uh, you know, if I do need to send some emails or write some reports, if I'm sitting on a plane or a train, uh, I find that to be very, very productive for me because I know no one's going to bother me. So that's the other issue, too. The issue is who will bother you. And sometimes, you know, there's too many temptations at home, uh, just like there could be some temptations on vacation or, you know, even at the summer cottage. The flip side of that is we've seen lots of offices, uh, especially tech, especially with younger workers in it. We've seen lots of office places that have decided, you know what, we're going to make this almost like a, a place to hang out more than an office. We're going to put in a foosball table and some video games. And and, I, and I'm looking going, all right, again, I get that you're trying to keep these people I- engaged and keep them happy at work, but it, it, are we like, have, have we lost the, whatever happened to just going to work, doing work, and then coming home and enjoying your time at home? Evidently, evidently, there's no such thing anymore. <laughs> you know, the old Dolly Parton song, 9 to 5, I think that uh, the younger generation's not heard Dolly Parton sing that song, unfortunately. Uh, you know, I was in uh, Washington, D.C., uh, near a tech center there uh, just last week, and uh, in some of the smaller startup entrepreneurial organizations, um, I saw what are called bed boxes. Uh, this is a hot new trend. I don't know how to feel about it, uh, but some people who are pulling all-nighters at work they actually have these boxes. They, they're, you know, quite small. You've probably seen some of them uh, in, in airports in Asia, for example, and, uh, and I've seen uh, them try to make their employees comfortable instead of having them go home if they're pulling an all-nighter. You know, sometimes employees, are, that's how they're productive, you know, programmers, computer programmers, uh, engineers, people that work with technology. You know, sometimes they think, hey, I, I'd like to put in three full days back-to-back-to-back to back to back and then have a four-day weekend. Well, if that's what makes you work, let me tell you, if I was their boss, the only thing that I would care about, honestly, at the end of the day is, are they happy? Are they engaged? And are they productive? Did they actually accomplish what they said they were going to? And if they did, you know, why should I care that somebody's, uh, you know, got a four-day weekend or not? Amen. No, look, that, that, that makes a ton of sense. That absolutely does. And, and the bed boxes or whatever else, if you're going to be there pulling all-nighters, if I've got a staff person who's going to pull an all-nighter for me, I'll, I'll let your net rest. I'm not, I'm not going to run a, a, a slave agent. I'm not going to run a sweatshop. Yeah. So you got to work 24 hours a day and maybe you'll get a piece of bread. I mean, That's so true. if you can find it, good. I just, th- this one's really interesting to me because we got to go, but I, I can look at this one, at this idea of the remote thing. And, and there's so many areas that you would say, I'd love to see a bunch of people give their employees a chance to do this. Let's see what happens. Let's see. Cause as you say, you're keeping people happy. And if you're keeping people happy, I think they will be productive. Well, like I said earlier in the call, you can ease into it. No one said you have to jump willy nilly into, you know, five days a week working remotely. Uh, it never hurt anybody to try it out, you know, maybe one day a month or one day every couple of weeks and see what happens. Uh, I think I think you'll be surprised. Both the workers and and the supervisors might be surprised with what the outcome is. Uh, there's Nick Bont is working remotely right now from his car doing an interview. See, it's perfect. It works. Uh, <laughs> thanks for the time. Appreciate it. All the best. Happy wine day. Thank you. You as well. Not right now. When you get home. 
You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I don't know how long, well, I do know how long it's supposed to take when you renovate an old arena. In this case, it's supposed to take a year. I'm talking about the Greitmeyer Arena, the JL Greitmeyer Arena, formerly the Market Street Arena in downtown Dundas on, not surprisingly, Market Street. Uh, it was supposed to be, it's an old, I think it's like 68, 69, 70-year-old arena. And the plan was there was $7 million. This thing was going to be, the front of it was going to be knocked down. They were going to expand it. There was going to be a second floor, better dressing rooms. Ah, boom, done. A year. Everybody moves out for a year. Minor hockey, minor figure skating, Dundas Real McCoys, Dundas Blues. Everyone's gone for a year. A year later, we come back. Boom, perfect. Eh, not so fast. I want to bring in... A very familiar voice on this show. We have him here every Monday night for something else. But we're going to bring him back for this one because he was the co-chair of the rebuild of the Great Myrene in Dundas. That's Don Robertson. Uh, Don, thanks for doing this today. No problem, Scott. So I'm guessing that even though we're just starting this conversation, I am guessing that the day you never have to answer a question or talk about the Great Myrene Arena construction again will be a beautiful day for you. I don't talk about it now. <laughs> you just, if there was a Greitmeyer Arena construction drinking game, you'd probably be in rehab at this point. <laughs> it's a wonder I'm not in rehab now for a lot of reasons. Tell the story of what happened here. For those who don't know, I'm sure most, many people know. If you live in Dundas, I would be willing to guarantee that you know. But for those who don't, tell the story of what happened here. Well, shortly after uh, we won Hockeyville and the game was over Ottawa, Senators, Buffalo Sabres, it was a great event. You know, Barry Forth and Leslie Watson uh, spearheaded the uh, got to be Dundas. So, you know, we win Hockeyville, thanks to their efforts, and get 100 grand. So we had a meeting with the president of minor hockey and Barry and Leslie and Steve Agler, who runs the junior C team in uh, my real estate office in Dundas. And I floated the idea. I said, I think we can turn 100000 into half a million. We'll put a second floor, look into putting a second floor on the building. You know, I'll talk to Russ Powers, who's the counselor at the time. We do all that. Some of the guys on the rotary, Kenny Beals and a couple of his buddies, Carl Fraser, they know a lot about building things. Look at the structure. Yeah, we can put a second floor on what's there. And then it's like, um, Captain, I think we've lost control. And then $7 million later, because the dressing room's, in the building were totally in, inadequate for uh, minor hockey. So we better redo the dressing rooms and it's like a house, right? So anybody that's been to jail, Greitmeyer knows the dressing rooms are under the lobby, like traditionally, like a lot of arenas of that vintage. And so if you're going to rip out the basement, I guess you're going to do the whole thing. So there we ended up and uh, the conservation played a role in it because of Spencer Creek that slowed the process. Uh, of starting the project so remember hockeyville was 2010 and if my math is still as good as it used to be that was nine years ago uh around now yep so um you know it's got to be waterproof it's got to be safe for the kids anyway delay 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 just to get going and then they award the contract and it's supposed to be ready last September. So we have a meeting in September. The city calls in based on what the, the contractor is telling them. And, you know, it's not going to be ready till October. Well, and when you went in in September, sorry to interrupt, but when you went in in September, it was bloody obvious to you it wasn't going to be re- ready for September. Oh, for sure. 
Well, it looked like Beirut. When you drive by it, I mean, it looked like a war zone. And it and it did till about five months ago. I mean, they're they've just finished the paving now. Anyway, the uh, to 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 be very kind to the contractor, things went off the rails, and uh, one thing led to another, and October turned to November, and November turned to February, and then um, uh, Dan McKenna from the city came in and said, "Look, we're not getting back in there." Uh, I don't know as it surprised many of us, but, you know, it was at that point when you're not going to get back in February, it really doesn't matter when you get back in, you got to September, right? So in any event, I, uh, if, there wasn't much the city could do because the contractor wasn't getting the job done. So you, you play it out. And as soon as the city had the opportunity, Scott, to take the building back under their control, which was a few weeks ago, I'm going to tell you, I... I'm very proud of our city, uh, the staff at the arena, um, the uh, um, city staff, Rome D'Angelo and Dan McKinnon and uh, Councillor Vanderbeek really knew that this thing had not gone well for our community. And boy, they took the bull by the horns and they are getting everything done. And when you walk into that building and there's going to be a free public skate on the weekend, and the grand opening on the 14th, it's got wow factor. Now, there's nothing going to be done on the second floor. Well, let's get to that. We'll get to that after the break. By the way, uh, Arlene Vanderbeek, who is the counselor for Dundas, I was talking to her today, and uh, she used one word to describe the process that it went through, and that was a nightmare, which I think is probably, um, when the counselor is saying this was a nightmare, I think it's probably a fair description of what happened. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. J.L. Greitmeyer Arena. Some people are jokingly call it the J.L. Quagmire Arena. Uh, not so much anymore. It's getting done. And the reason we're talking about this is not just because a local arena in Hamilton is opening up after a renovation. That happens. That's been done elsewhere. This is just, it's been an interesting saga. And when I say interesting, other people can add whatever word they want in there. Most of them will not use the word interesting. Many of them who are involved in this may use words we're not allowed to say on the air. Uh, Don Robertson might have, but he's so experienced now being on the radio that he knows better. But anyway, uh, Don Robertson <laughs> continues here with us. I hope. We have our finger closely looming over the sensor button, even though I don't know how to work it. Uh, so, Don, here's the thing, though, about this story. And, and this is the the part of it that I find so, I don't know, troubling or difficult or whatever. And I'm sure you do, too. And that is, you know, it's it's one thing to just talk about a construction project, but in a town especially in a winter in Canada, the arena still is, I mean, I know we're not in 1950 anymore, but the arena still is a centerpiece for a lot of people. You've got your team, you've got the Dundas Blues, you've got Dundas minor hockey, you've got Dundas figure skating, you've got public skating, you've got seniors who use it. And all of them are displaced by this over the last year. Well, the last two years. Well, the first year though, you knew. See, that's the bad part. Like there was some... Tremendous discomfort with minor hockey. We had to play out of Eastwood and Olympic and travel around, you know, the junior seas and our, our club, the Real McCoys, did as well. But, you know, you kind of go, wow, a year. Well, you know, it's going to be great when it's done. But then to be misled and lied to about the completion date. And I'm not talking about the city of Hamilton. I'm talking about the contract who just provided misinformation after misinformation and you scott you nailed it i mean in every community 
uh, and you know, we I know we're the city of Hamilton now, but I know I grew up in Linden and Flamborough is a big thing. They have their own identity, Ancaster, Dundas. Arena, hockey arenas are generally considered the heartbeat of a community, not just for hockey, not just for figure skating, ringette, whatever. But, you know, the, uh, the Rotary Club of Dundas had their fish fry up at Harry Howell Arena for two or three years. I think they were there three years. And when you got a community of its, of its heart and then delay it by a year, well, of course there's going to be people mad and of course there's going to be people upset. And it only makes sense. It's just the people in small towns don't like to be misled. They don't want to be told what they want to hear. They want to be told the truth. And that did not happen. Now, the only good news is out of this whole thing, but it would have been better news a year ago because it would have been the same result, is that the dressing room facilities are going to be spectacular for the minor hockey system and for the visiting teams that play the Blues and the real McCoys. All that's going to be, it, it does have wow factor, but it should have had it a year ago. So you're right. They gutted our community, and they misled us. And the city appropriately banned the, the contracting company from even being able to bid on the city project for two years. I'd be surprised if they come back in two years and even try. Well, to the point, we were, I was at the rink today, and it does look much, much, much better than what it was before. I mean, it was a tired arena before. It looks very good. And, and for people who, who are familiar with the place, the other thing that I really like about it, and I'll let you jump in on this, I have always said that the rink itself is the best rink in the city to watch a hockey game in because it's so intimate. That part hasn't been changed. It's all the peripheral stuff around it. Uh, you know, it's... Look, it, it's a better deal. It's a better end goal or it's a better end result than what you have. But it just, it strikes me as so odd that something like this even happens. The, and, and I mean, I, I look, we, we've got the stadium, the football stadium, Tim Hortons Field. We had similar, not exactly the same, but similar things with delays and things not working and the city had to jump in. And boy, it seems like if, if the city of Hamilton is going to sign up a contractor or sign a contract to have any kind of sports facility built, I'm not sure what lesson should be learned from this, but I think there should be a lesson because this is 0 for 2. Well, it, in defense of the city of Hamilton and our, and our counselors, the, um, the football stadium was built by the province of Ontario. Yep, you're right. And you're right. The city of Hamilton had absolutely no control over it. Um, you know, when the city of Hamilton runs things other than this debacle, they generally get it right. So let me rephrase right. this. And when anyone is going to build a sports facility in the city of Hamilton, the city of Hamilton should step in and say, hold on, we got some lessons here we want to apply. That's right. And one of the big ones is, and I don't, I mean, I think it's legislated, but I mean, you can't have a thousand dollar a day penalty if it's not done on time. That's not substantial enough. Oh, you want more? Well, sure, you got to make it expensive. You know, cut them a little slack for 30 days, but after that, make it, you know, make it so that they're going to make sure it gets done. And I that part, the city can figure out. I can't figure it out. But, you know, you're right. The We wanted the old bowl of the of, uh, J.L. Grantmeyer Arena to stay intact. It's a beautiful arena. It's nostalgic. It's It says, it. you know, it stinks of hockey, old-time hockey. And that's the wonderful part. The only addition out in that part is the walking track, which which was felt was rather important. Um, I was in uh, a couple buildings that are, that are newer that, that have new walking tracks and, and, and Greitmeyer has that now. 
So, I mean, there's been a lot of wonderful additions that now makes that building very permanent. But I hope you're right, Dave, that perhaps something's been learned from this lesson of uh, we can't we can't be held hostage by a rogue contractor again. Well, especially when you're tying up the entire community. And to be honest with you, um, minor hockey will feel the pinch. I don't know what damage it's done to their registration after two years. Because, you know, kids that play in house league, they just want to drop their kids down to the local rink. They don't want to go to the East End. There's nothing wrong with the East End of Hamilton. There's nothing wrong with going anywhere, but the expectation is your kid's going to play minor hockey. He's going to play locally. The Junior C's played in half the arenas in the city of Hamilton. The McCoys had the stability of going up to Perry Hall Arena, which is a wonderful facility. And, you know, the staff were great to us, but it, it's not home. It's not done that. Got to jump in, Don. Uh, and it does, by the way, it stinks a little less of hockey than it used to. For now. Just saying. We will take a break. Thank you, Don. Appreciate your time today. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hour number two of the Scott Radley Show here on 900 CHML. Thanks for being here on National Red Wine Day. Don't know how many of you are still with us. We, we told you to start celebrating last hour. Hopefully there's a few of you who are still upright. National Red Wine Day. Few people would be celebrating that as a national holiday. Uh, bottom of this hour, by the way, we are going to be counting down, going through a bunch of the oddest named cocktails, real drinks. You may have heard of some, you may not have heard of some, but we're going to be going through, Lorraine and I are going to be going through many of the, or some of the weirdest named cocktails that are out there. I don't know if you've ever tried a smoker's cough. <laughs> this one, wait till you hear what's in a smoker's cough. Ooh, I, I couldn't even imagine drinking it. But some people will. And when we talk about it, some people may do it tonight. We'll, we'll explain later. First, your quiz question. And then, by the way, we're going to talk about Bigfoot as well in just a second. But your quiz question first. We're throwing you a softball today. We're setting this one up on the tee. We've had some really hard quiz questions this week. So we're going to, we're going to give you one tonight. Earth is located in what galaxy? Come on. 905-645-3221. Star 9900. you got to know this one. In what galaxy is Earth located? That is, that is, that's right there for you. Chance to just cleanse the palate a little bit today and get one for sure. Because last night was really hard and we had very few people get it. So give Lorraine a call, 905-645-3221 or star 9900. Those are the numbers to call. She will take your call. She'll take your name. She'll take your guess. And we'll get to the right answer and those who knew it at the end of the show. However... I want to talk about this because I saw a story about this and I said, I've got to get that guy on here. Uh, do you believe in the Loch Ness Monster? Some of you will. Some of you aren't sure. Do you believe in aliens? Do you think we've had aliens among us? That somebody from another planet, little green men perhaps, have come here and are really on Earth. Or maybe they're living among us without us knowing. They're shapeshifters. Who knows? Uh, how about do you believe in Bigfoot? Again, some of you do. Some of you will. I want to talk about that for the next little while, because whether or not you do, I guarantee you there are plenty of people who do believe in Sasquatch, who do believe in Bigfoot, or at least are open to the concept for sure. A few years ago, I had a guy on this show. His name was Todd Standing. And he is a guy who at that time had just sued the province of British Columbia 
in order to force the government to send a biologist into the wilderness for a minimum of three months to prove the existence of Sasquatch. He said if the government would send an independent biologist into the woods, into the wild, they would find Sasquatch and they would be able to prove it. The government won that case. The biologist, I don't believe, ever actually went into the wilderness for three months. Nonetheless, Todd Standing believed. Now, my next guest has done, sort of, for the most part, what Standing had asked for. Maybe not for three months, but he went to the BC wilderness in search of Bigfoot. Then he wrote about it. He's a writer from Toronto named John Zada, and he joins me now. John, how are you today? Good. How are you? I'm great. Thank you for joining us. Uh, do you believe, are you a believer or are you a, I want to believe, or are you a, I'm open to believing? What's your stance on Bigfoot? Yeah, um, I would say that I'm uh, open to believing. I'm, I'm, I lean a bit towards the, the possibility that, you know, these, you know, tall, hairy, upright primate creatures uh, known as Bigfoot or Sasquatch have perhaps uh, eluded our best attempts to prove their existence. Um, I grew up, you know, fascinated in the subject as a kid. Uh, back in, you know, the late 70s and early 80s, there was, a, you know, a spike in, in interest in the Sasquatch and, and popular culture. And so um, I started reading books about it as a, as a youth, and it just kind of sticks with you. you. You become fascinated, you become hooked, and, and, and I just carried it into, you know, into adulthood. And as the years went by and as, you know, my travels accrued, uh, you know, as a travel writer and as a journalist, I kept meeting people who had claimed to have seen the creatures or thought that they'd heard the creatures. And so it just got to a point where I kept hearing about it over and over and over again that I just decided that, you know, maybe once and for all, I should take a stab at writing a book about it. So how does one decide, okay, so you've got this idea that, okay, I'm going to go do this. <laughs> I, if Now, how do you go from that to saying, okay, now, how do I even begin to become a Bigfoot hunter? Where do you go to figure out how to turn this into something tangible? Yeah, well, um, there's a bit of a backstory. So I traveled out to the central coast of British Columbia, uh, um, an area known as the Great Bear Rainforest. Um, it's a place of, of ima- you know, immense natural wonder, and, and it's, it's one of the most pristine you know, forests and mountain regions on Earth, I would say. And I was there to do a travel piece, and it, it just so happens that it is, an, you know, it is an area where there are a lot of reports historically there are small indigenous communities uh some non-indigenous people living out there and um while i was there to actually you know spend two weeks traveling and doing this adventure story for uh you know a magazine i started hearing about yet again started hearing about you know encounters and reports and fairly recent stuff because there are a lot of older older stories there too and um by the end of the two-week trip it was you know i i i had accumulated so much information so many anecdotes and, and so many eyewitness reports, in addition to all of the other narratives and stories and themes that are going on out there, environmental stuff, you know, oil politics and stuff. I just thought, you know, this is now the time to to take a stab at this and, and to do this book. Okay, so I I generally in life would play the Dana Scully rather than the Fox Mulder. I'm, I'm right. someone who needs to be a little more, have it proven to me than someone who For is sure. willing to buy in. So how do you determine when you get all these reports, you get these sightings or these people who say they've seen something, how do you determine when you're hunting Bigfoot, what is a credible sighting? Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, if, if, you know, we know, you know, for a fact that there have been hoaxes and there are, there are, there are tracks that have been fabricated and, and whatnot. But I mean, um, when you go out to these areas, they're really remote areas again. And, and I can't even stress, you know, 
to you how massive and expansive and impenetrable some of these regions are. And the people who live there, um, for instance, I was in a place called uh, Bella Bella, which is the, the, you know, the traditional territory of, of the Helsic First Nation. And the people out there, I mean, they hunt, they fish, their backyards, I mean, all the homes back onto uh, the backcountry, essentially. So they know the bears, they know uh, all of the varying wildlife and the sounds that they make. And so you're, you're, you know, you're basically talking to people out there who are experts in uh, the area's wildlife and just as much as any biologist or, or, or zoologist would be essentially. So when, you know, when, when uh, someone tells you that they were out with four other adults and they had a long um, I, you know, eyewitness encounter that lasted 30 seconds, it's, it's very different than you know, campers who don't have much experience in the bush who say that they'd heard you know, a twig snap and you know, they thought that they might have seen an outline of something. You're getting, you're getting stories that are actually very detailed uh, um, and, and, and go, into, go into a great deal of, of you know, small detail in terms of what they've seen. And, and the reports tend to be fairly consistent um, across North America in terms of the animal that they describe. Which is what? What would be the typical, because we, you know, we've seen Harry and the Hendersons and we've seen all the, the, you know, the stuff. What would be the typical description that you would hear from someone who would be considered credible? Right. I mean, generally speaking, what will happen is um, somebody will be out doing something, hunting, fishing, hiking, with loggers working, and they'll, you know, turn, they'll maybe feel it, you know, the, the hair on the back of their neck stand up because they just they feel that they're not alone, and they'll turn and they'll see what generally is described as something, you know, weighing several hundred pounds, standing on its hind legs, looking like a humanoid. It's looking like a person, essentially. And, and there's this sort of moment where both the creature and the person have this, you know, they... Often it's the person who sees them first, and then what will happen is they'll, they'll be so afraid they'll take a few steps back, and then you know, the animal will see them, and there'll be this kind of moment of almost confusion. Like the person's brain is trying to figure out, okay, am I actually seeing this? Is this actually a person? Or in some other cases, the, the animals will be on all fours. They'll be, they'll be crouched down. They'll think that they're a bear, and then suddenly they'll stand up. And so in most cases, what will happen is there'll be an impasse, and... Uh, either the person will run off or the creature will run off and it'll, it'll take several steps, hide behind a tree and vanish, or it will run off down a, down a beach over driftwood. And they'll know that it's not a bear because bears, although they do stand, um, and they can take a few steps, even several steps in a, in a sort of almost like, um, you know, high, high, like a high wire act balancing sort of way, this, these things will tend to run and, and maneuver through the forest deftly. And so, um, yeah, and they're considered to be generally shy. And there are other reports that, that involve rock throwing or bluff charges or the animals attacking cabins and whatnot. And so there's a lot of them. And so I, I think what, what made me want to write the book was to want to try and come to some answer for at least myself anyway, given that there is so much anecdotal evidence, if you want to call it evidence, I guess it's more, more you know, um, people's people's stories um and And is your is your sense when you're hearing these things are you naturally a skeptic or are you someone who is saying oh that sounds true i believe that are you are you yeah it's it's well in my case i i find that i i I shift right like it depends where i am i mean in the moment when you're hearing the story from somebody who you know is credible and you know you know that they are um skilled and versed in 
let's say backcountry activities and and who are you can just it's an intu- it's an intuitive thing sometimes when you're when you're judging a person's character in the moment you do it's hard, you just listen and you just like yeah man i i i i can see this being the case and um other times stories are a bit more doubtful so it it depends on who you're talking to and also i find myself my own opinion varies i mean when i'm back in toronto i'm back in the city and i haven't been out and you know in the backcountry for a while and and you know i go on the internet and i see a whole bunch of these really blurry you know crappy pictures of sasquatch and i'm like (laughs) why hasn't this thing been found yet?" exactly i have have, have my i have my own moments of doubt and uh i I don't know i mean i the book was not written to convince anyone that there is a Sasquatch or that I just thought that it would be, you know, as a travel writer, it would be one really interesting thread to follow as I also write about the region culturally, historically, politically, because it is more, more than just a Sasquatch book. And that was the idea was to kind of do something that was multi-layered and had weaves of narrative into it. Cause, um, it's not. It isn't really just the Sasquatch book. No, and it's a look. It's a great idea because, as I say, there are many people who really do believe this. Not even are are open to believing. Who really believe this? Right. You raise well, though, to me, what probably is the most difficult thing. If I was ever going to be asked, could you believe that there is a Bigfoot out there? It's like, okay, how come every single picture we've ever been able to get of one of these things, allegedly, is always out of focus? Surely Mm -hmm. once there would be someone who would snap one picture that would be in focus. For sure. For sure. And that's, I mean, that is one of the, I mean, that, besides the the argument is where is the body, where is the bones, where are the fossils? I mean, that is the most widely raised question about the photographs. But, I mean, I'm also a photographer. I'm a travel photographer. And, I mean, uh, I mean, I can say that I have tried to take, nature photos in the forest and the forest is often dark and you have to adjust the settings on you know i use an sl you know digital slr and it's it's very very difficult in forested environments to with with the dim lighting and all the foliage and and the cover and everything to to get the right settings and so when you often what eyewitnesses will say is you know at the moment i was so freaked out i was so scared it didn't even occur to me to pull the phone out of my backpack or like I, you know, so there may be some leeway in terms of explaining the lack of pictures from the fact, if you could just imagine that maybe it's just not something that you would do automatically when you're faced with something that is as three times your size and looks like it may want to kill you. So um, I, I don't know. Anyway, that, that it, granted, it is a very good question. When you're back in Toronto, because you say you're in, you're in Toronto a lot of the time, mm. And I mean, certainly the book provides great cover, even if you needed such. But if you're back in Toronto and say, you know what, I, yeah, I'm going to go on a Bigfoot hunt. Do people in Toronto look at you like you completely lost your mind or what's the reaction to that? Well, yeah, I mean, I, you know, I can only speak for the experience of having written the book and the fact that I've gone and investigated as a journalist. I mean, the, the, you know, my, my, my journalistic credentials give me a kind of bona fide that makes it so, sort of acceptable, but that you're not a wingnut. You're not a wingnut. You're a journalist. Well, well, well no. I mean, yeah. I mean, I, I was I was going to write a book, and I and I think I think you know I don't know I I think I get more flack from people in certain remote communities or in rural communities about this than I would in the city. I think the city people tend to be more intrigued. I think I think they 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 more want to believe that there is something like this. I mean. The, you know the, the reaction I tend to get the most is, "Oh man, really? Wow! Like, so do you? Like, 
what did you find out? Did you, do you do you think that there are such things? And I, I think I think as as people who live in in in, in a concrete realm and in, in, in a concrete environment, the idea of the wild and of something that lives in the wild that has eluded us is is so much more appealing uh, to them than you know the natural reflex to criticize uh, or whatever. And that that's been my experience. And you know I'm not a Sasquatch hunter. I haven't I didn't go hunting for it. I went to go try and understand what both the animal if it does exist is and and more importantly um what the symbol of the sasquatch represents to to us and why we pursue it and it's the more philosophical angle that really hooked me in the end you mentioned about the remote uh people in the remote remote communities do they do you get the sense that people in the remote areas especially in the areas you went to do they want this to be real do, would they want someone to find a sasquatch to prove that it exists or would they want it just to go away so that you don't have people wandering around looking for sasquatches well I, you know i don't think there are so many people who are going out looking for them so i mean i i think i think people there tend to be somewhat agnostic about it either they um in the areas where there are the highest reports either they have seen one or they know someone who's seen one and and they it's not really a huge deal to them or um or they haven't seen it and they tend to be if if they're going to be opinionated about it in any way at all it will be a kind of the reaction will be something to, to the effect of well i've been hunting and fishing for 40 years out here and I haven't even seen such a thing, so that it couldn't possibly exist. And so, yeah, they, they tend to not really have an opinion as to whether they want one or not. It's just more um, whether they're actually open to it or not. John, you were out there. I don't know. How long were you out in the woods looking or in the wilderness looking? I went on, you know, the book is based on one three-month trip, but then wow, I, went okay. back, I went back to the Great Bear Rainforest on a number of occasions to do further research and to actually write parts of the book in which I did sort of do parallel research. So, I mean, I, I would say in total over several trips, maybe over a year. So did you, one area. did you see anything that gave you any reason to think that it exists? Um, well, no, I have, I didn't actually see a Sasquatch. So that's definitely, I mean, not to give the book away and I don't really want to sort of give too much. Fair enough. I, I didn't actually see one, but, um, there was an incident, there was an incident where I was, told by some local people that, that there were some really mysterious, small, funny-looking tracks on the edge of this, um, you know, remote lake and everything. And I went and investigated that, and it did turn out that they were the, you know, they were these kind of almost childlike-looking footprints in this, on the edge of this village site where nobody really visits and on, in the mud and everything. And But, I mean, yeah, I mean, there were a lot of, like, maybes and possibilities and um, I didn't, you know, I didn't actually encounter one myself. So, um, do you, you know. I mean, do you wish you had, the, I mean, on the one hand, it would be great yeah. for the book. On the other hand, yeah. it's like, well, if they exist and one was nine feet tall and hairy and mean and looking, I mean, that might be a little distracting. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. And I, I mean, I often thought what would happen if I, if I actually, if the, if the animals do exist and I actually did encounter one, like how would I, like it would, it would almost be as, you know, how convenient, like you find the Sasquatch. And so, yeah, I don't know. It was. It, I. I did. I did want to. I did. I. That is. The, that is the quest in a way. The, the. The search was to go search for the Sasquatch. And so, um, but on the other hand, yeah, I don't. I don't know what I would have done, or, or if, if you know, would I had I, would I've included it in the book? I. I don't know. It's just. I mean, and I and I and I talk about that process in in in, in the writing of it. That, you know, like, 
um, I don't know, perhaps even the publishers may not have even accepted it had it, had it been, had it, had I actually made those claims. So that's right. Yeah. Right. John. Sure. It's a very, it's it's a very tricky subject. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's right. You show up to the publisher who I saw one and they go, yeah, sure. Okay. And, and and do you have a picture? Well, yes, it's grainy though. Yeah. Okay. I got it. I got it. Uh, the book is called author or sorry. The book is called in the valleys of the noble beyond in search of the Sasquatch. Uh, and I have one more thing I have to ask you about in your book, in the excerpt that I read, you use the word Bigfoots, plural. Shouldn't it be yeah. big feet? Yeah, that's a that's a frequent question. <laughs> I, the, the sort of the, the main the the, the well known, you know, Bigfoot slash Sasquatch Sasquatch researchers in the U.S. who were on a show called Finding Bigfoot, which yes. aired on Animal Planet for yep. like I think over a decade. They were the ones who sort of set the terminology in stone, and they used Bigfoots, and so. I, I don't know, I kind of found that to be sort of a, a, a less humorous, you know, uh, plural form than big feet, because then, of course, that, that conjures up um, images in the mind of <laughs> big feet, right? So, um, uh, this yeah. is, that is John Zeta, who is the author of Valley, The Valleys of the Noble Beyond in Search of the Sasquatch. Uh, it sounds like a great book, John. I'm hoping to pick one up. And listen, I appreciate you awesome. taking some time today. Thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. It's, uh, look, I, I, I am a skeptic. I am probably beyond a skeptic. I I have a very hard time believing that such a thing exists. If if a Sasquatch, if Bigfoot existed, surely by now we would have found one, found a carcass of one, found, had someone, as I say, take a picture that we could identify as one, caught one. I mean, they, he mentioned that they had that TV show that was for like 10 seasons searching. Surely with the, um, what do you call it? The heat cameras and the, all that stuff. Surely we would have come up with something, right? Surely. It's like Loch Ness Monster. I, I, okay. I, I mean, it's great. It's a great story and it would be hilarious and it would be great if it existed. But after all these years, but as he says, there are enough people in that area who say they see something that I suppose at the very least you got to say, okay, I'm 99% sure something like this doesn't exist, but can I say for sure that that 1% isn't, I don't know. I don't know. Uh, In the Valleys of the Noble Beyond in Search of the Sasquatch is the name of the book, if you are so inclined to give it a look. The Scott Radley Show. Weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML. The Scott Radley Show podcast is available on Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, and wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Scott Radley. Thanks again for listening, and do not forget to subscribe to this podcast. It is free. You will never miss an episode. And also, be sure you rate us and review us. Whatever you think of us, we'll take it. Thanks for listening.